Not only does that make sense, like you are blowing my mind right now because <laughs> when you said there's only four things, I was like, oh, baby, like I bet you I'm going to think of so many more than four things. <laughs> and then as you went over the, all the four things, I'm like, holy crap, like I think that's it. I think it really is just those four <laughs> things. Like it's that's incredible it. that we're that simple. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings, drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? My name is Blake Fletcher, and this is the Half Hour Intern Podcast, where we explore the interesting paths people take in life. I'm very excited. This is the very first episode back from vacation, and it is a really good one. If you were anything like me, you will love today's episode. In it, I speak with Gianna Biscontini, who is a board-certified behavioral analyst. Um, She's also a writer and speaker on the topic and has founded her own company called WorkWell, where she uses behavior analysis to make more healthy workplace environments, Um, ideally uh, sort of holistically healthy for people, uh, reducing stress loads, things like that in the workplace that lead to uh, more productivity in the workplace, but also just people feeling better and less stressed out day to day at work. Um, We will talk a bit about that. We will also just talk a lot about behavioral science and behavioral analysis um, as a whole, which is a super fun thing to talk about. Like, why the heck do any of us do the things that we do? And how can we hope to change ourselves and to change the behaviors that we find ourselves engaging in over and over and over again? So a really fun episode here with Gianna. I hope you all like it. Without further ado, here is Behavioral Analyst. Gianna, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Yeah. So why don't we start out with if you could just give us a nice, clean definition of what behavioral science is. It's one of those words that I feel like most of us feel like, you know, hey, I know the word behavior. I know the word science. Like I I must know what behavioral science is, but I assume it's probably more complicated than that. Yes, absolutely. Um, so I could do probably 12 hours on a podcast of what behavioral science is. Um, basically, it's the science of why we do what we do. Um, And to clarify, behavioral science, I think there are a lot of people out there that might say that they study behavioral science or they are a behavioral scientist, social scientists um, studying organizations or maybe consumer behavior or something like that. I'm a board certified behavior analyst. Um, So the, the branch of science that I'm in is actually a natural science, not a social science, and it's called applied behavior analysis. So this is pigeons and rats. And, you know, most of your listeners have probably heard of Pavlov's dogs and BF Skinner and all of that. And as it turns out, behavior is behavior is behavior. So we were studying the behavior of rats and pigeons and we extrapolated that um, to humans. So we are very, very systematic in the way that we study human behavior. Mm. And uh, we basically stick with what's observable and measurable and that type of thing. Okay, so uh, all that makes me think of some of the college class. So I, I majored in marketing which it would be like a a very uh, poor, poor form of this, I guess. Um, But certain classes that I had had to do with um, like consumer behavior, I guess. Mm -hmm. And it it makes me think of some of those classes where it would be like, oh, stores would analyze that, you know, 80% of the time, for whatever reason, when somebody walks into a store, they go to the right. So, uh, you know, they're going to put their best deals or their worst deals or whatever, or, you know, the most desirable stuff to the right, because they know that that's what people are going to see when they first walk in. 
is that the type of thing that you're that you're talking about? Just like hard statistics on like we notice that people do these things. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of it is what we call like a single case design. So if I am studying the science of human behavior, I am more likely to study Blake than like a giant group of people um, because we it's very individualized. Um, there are only really four reasons we do anything. And we could, you know, I could have four people that engage in the same behavior, but for totally different reasons. The function of that behavior could be different. So as as a board certified behavior analyst, we are trained to study the function of someone's behavior. So basically we get, we gather very specific data on a very specific behavior, um, analyze what the person is getting out of the, that behavior, and then we might create a plan to modify that behavior and then implement it while taking data. So everything we do is very individualized and very data-based. Um, ideally, the behavior change produces like a socially meaningful result for the individual or the group. Um, so yeah, I hope people that are are in marketing art that aren't out there saying that they're <laughs> behavioral scientists. But as it yeah. turns out, um, behavior is anything that we do, right? So as a as a behavior analyst, we study behavior, which is everywhere. Um, most behavior analysts get their start in a clinical sense, working with children with autism. Um, applied behavior analysis is really the only evidence-based practice to treat autism. Um, but there are a lot of us out there now that are saying, well, if behavior is everywhere, then we can work everywhere, right? So gambling addiction, we can work with the geriatric population. People use it to train dogs. People use it, yes, for children with autism, um, use it in organizations. So really it's applicable everywhere. Okay. So you mentioned the piece about we're all like beautiful snowflakes. We're all N equals <laughs> one. So each person might have their different reason behind doing the same thing. So you might have the Pavlov dog experiment and yet every dog might have a different reason, like a different thing going off in their head as they decide to go, uh, when the bell rings. Now do the type of like a behavior analyst like you and what you're more interested in, do you care about why or are you just looking for what? Is it like, okay, these four people did this thing. We don't really need to know why they did it. Or is it the opposite? Like that, that is the crux of what you're doing is you want to know why each one of those people did it. Sure. Um, to clarify, so Pavlov's dogs is that's more of a respondent conditioning. So he conditioned dogs to salivate. Right. And you know, if you hold up, you know, something delicious in front of me, I'm going to my, I don't have to think about salivating, right? I don't think, I don't have to think about my body doing that. It just naturally does it. What we focus on is called operant conditioning. And basically it's just a, a different behavior that you can condition. Um, so just to clarify that. And then, um, yes, we do care about why we do what we do. Like I said, there's only four reasons we do anything. So the why is really important. I'll give you an example. The four reasons why we do anything um, is to gain access to attention um, from other people, to gain access to some sort of a tangible item, food, money, clothing, a book, I mean, any tangible item, um, to escape or avoid something that might be like uncomfortable or aversive. Um, and those three are the three that are socially mediated. It depends on other people around us, right? So other people, that's what we say our environments condition us. The fourth reason is for, some people might call it sensory, we call it automatic reinforcement. If I walk outside and I don't have my sunglasses on, I squint, right? And because the sun is in my eyes. So that behavior has nothing to do with anyone else. It's just the sun is shining and that evokes the behavior of me putting on my sunglasses. 
because then it removes that that horrible feeling of like getting sun in my eyes. Does that make sense? Gianna, I not only does that make sense, like you are blowing my mind right now because <laughs> when you said there's only four things, I was like, oh baby, like I bet you I'm going to think of so many more than four things. <laughs> and then as you went over the, all the four things, I'm like, holy crap, like I think that's it. I think it really is just those four <laughs> things. Like it's that's incredible it. that we're that simple. Yes, that's it. And what I think, you know, that's part of um, what we try and explain, you know, I'm part of a, a, a group of a couple dozen people probably that are on, in the entrepreneurial space now. We're trying to make behavior analysis cool because it is cool. Um, you know, even even though it's uncomfortable and we all want to believe, you know, we've got this free will and everything is very mystical and magical. And hey, I do yoga. We talk about the phases of the moon and how it affects our behavior not behavioral science, right? I have two totally separate personalities when it comes to um, my work and my personal life. Um, so while we do want to believe that, you know, there's there's magic out there, at the end of the day, behavior is um, quite predictable, but it's super, super cool. So getting back to your question, yes, the function of why I'm engaging in the behavior is really, really important if we want to change it because, you know, take attention, right? Um, when I say to people, oh, you did that for attention, it sounds bad. It sounds needy. And nobody wants to feel like they need attention or they need, you know, whatever. But that's totally fine, right? If 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 you're my employee and I say, Blake, you totally crushed that the other day. Thank you so much for helping with that meeting. I'm giving you attention and it feels good. It is 100% okay to want that. Now, when you're seeking that attention in harmful ways or in ways that are harmful to you or other people, that's a problem, right? right. So I would say, okay, Blake is doing this for attention. It's it's harming other people or it's it's causing a barrier to this work project or whatever. The function is be the function of his behavior is attention. And there are exper- experimental conditions that we can run out to assess the function. Sometimes it's not obvious and sometimes it is. Um, but if I can say, okay, Blake is engaging in this behavior for attention, it's it's having a negative consequence on the team, I can now know, great, I can solve that problem. I can give Blake attention for doing all the stuff that he does that's positive, or I can teach him to access attention and get attention in more positive ways that drive our team towards this success or this project. Um, does that make sense? It completely makes sense. So you are transitioning very nicely now into kind of the second part of this which is applying behavioral science to the workplace, which is what you do, what your company does, what your specialty is. So let's dive into more of what you've already started diving into, which is how exactly do you apply behavioral science to the workplace? Sure. Um, So behavior analysis in the workplace is called organizational behavior management. Um, And OBM, we called OBM, OBM practitioners can work to... um, increase or decrease a variety of behaviors. They're working mostly to improve upon positive behaviors in a workplace that drives towards a goal. Um, So OBM practitioners can work to improve safety conditions. Um, They can work to improve productivity or some other measure of performance or success in an organization. So it really depends on what the company needs. Um, If it's a factory and there are you know, 47 injuries per year, you know, the the company is spending money, right? Um, and obviously, we want to protect our employees and keep everyone safe. So if industry standard for that practice is, say, 10 injuries a year, now we have a measure. We want to go from 47 injuries a year to, you know, more like 10, right? That's the industry standard. And of course, we want to go towards zero, but we want to we drive towards a goal. 
instead of just saying, hey, we're going to have a safety training. We're going to come in and Gia is going to talk about how to be safe in the workplace. And here's 10 things you can do to be safe. Okay, bye. Um, we come in and, and analyze the situation. So I might say, wow, you know, I'm noticing the way that this environment is set up and the variables surrounding this behavior, it, it's set up to, you know, I, I can see why you have uh, more injuries. What if we do it this way? What if we have the person, I don't know, turning left instead of turning right? What if we arrange the environment so that this machine is over here and this person is standing over here? Um, so that's one way that people can work in the workplace um, as an OBM practitioner. Other people might say, hey, we have a real retention issue. Everybody's leaving. It's costing the company money. Um, we really want to have a culture where people come and they're they're enjoying their work and they want to stay and they produce results. So an OBM practitioner would come in and assess those variables, um, which is a very involved thing, but they might run a, a performance diagnostic checklist or something like that to assess the performance um, of individual and group behaviors um, in an organization. And uh, yeah, the, like I said, the interesting thing about behavior analysis is that it can be applied anywhere. You're really focused on specific behaviors. So the opportunity for behavior analysis in the workplace is, is really endless. Um, what I do is improve health behavior. Um, so I don't know if you wanted to get into that now and I can explain that a little bit more. Please. Yeah, I would love to. Great. Okay. Um, so as we know, uh, the workplace it can be a stressful environment. Um, that's mostly our focus. Um, so the story kind of goes um, that, you know, I was in a clinical practice and then I moved on um, to wanting to start my own company and, and get into entrepreneurship. And I wanted to use behavioral science outside of the clinical world in a meaningful way. And what meant the most to me um, was making sure that people were happier and healthier at work. Not only is it good for the indi individual, it has obviously um, social impact. You know, if we can help people go home and um, be excited about their work and get up in the morning and go to work and be excited. But it also has an effect on the organization's bottom line, right? If I'm happy at work, I'm more likely to um, to be productive, to drive towards organizational goals, um, and to to lead you know my team better, um, and also to stay. Uh, work is a huge part of our life, so I wanted to decrease stress and, and work on these public health issues like chronic disease and and stress and anxiety through the workplace because that's where we spend most of our time. It's such a huge part of our lives. Um, so we created an assessment um, called the Health and Business Assessment that basically helps companies make employee health a business metric. And how do we do that? We analyze individual behaviors in the workplace. We give a, our tagline is we make corporate health heroes. Um, so you get a corporate health hero score from our assessment. And that is all complimentary. That's all free at this point. Uh, and then we move forward if the company wants to work on changing certain behaviors based on their score. Um, and we divide the assessment up into attention and focus, which some people might call mindfulness. Um, as a behavior analyst, we we would say there's no such thing as the mind, but there is such a thing as the brain because we can observe it. Uh, so wow, sorry to interrupt. You, <laughs> it really, as a behavior analyst, you think that there's no such thing as a as a mind? That's such an esoteric. Um, that's such an esoteric thing for a behavior analyst to to wrap our head around. Um, because how do you measure the mind, right? Like, how do you first of all how do you operationally define the mind? What right. is that? 
Um, and then even if we could come up with a really good definition, it has to be observable and measurable. So how do you observe and measure the mind? Um, which is a huge hurdle as a behavior analyst talking about meditation and yoga from a behavior analytic standpoint that I had to get over um, and explain. Um, so we really just nail that down to attention and focus. And also, um, some people might say emotional regulation, we would say delayed responding. So uh, if you're in traffic and you get cut off, instead of like flipping someone the bird and screaming and, you know, honking your horn, can we put something between that stimulus, which is getting cut off and that response, which is getting stressed out, get, you know, flipping someone the bird, which could have other consequences. Someone gets out of the car, it turns into this whole big thing. How can we put something between that stimulus and that, and that response? Um, so sorry, I kind of went off on a, a rabbit hole tangent there. <laughs> no, but- that, so I'm, I'm like, I'm still like fascinated in this part right now. So for, for the, a lot of the mindfulness and like, you know, like you were saying how it's, it's, um, uh, it puts you in like a little bit of a conundrum because for like mindfulness and meditation practice and stuff like that, so much of the thought there is on like the mind and the spirit and things like that. But people mm-hmm. in your profession, if you don't uh, really, I guess, acknowledge those things, then you have to find your own ways to think about it and talk about it, um, which puts you in, in an interesting position. You personally, Gianna, do you do you personally believe in the concept of like a mind and a spirit or are you just like, look, we're all just a freaking big bag of chemicals <laughs> and electrons firing off and we can be predicted and yada, yada, yada. You know, I... Uh... I am a gypsy soul. Um, I love to travel. I love nature. Um, you know, for my own, for my own well-being, I think in health, like I choose to believe that, um, you know, that there's some sort of a higher power out there, right? Um, I don't have any proof of that, um, but that's something that I choose to believe because I want to live a richly packed life. A lot of behavior analysts don't feel that way. Um, but for me, I've nailed it down to, you know, what kind of a human I want to be. And I've dedicated my life to the science, um, you know, but at the same time, I do understand that uh, you know, we are, are, we are conditioned by our environments. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know as far as my work goes, as far as the minds, um, I always think about it in terms of the brain because we can measure the brain and it's such a complex thing. Um, but we can measure, you know, what's firing when I'm presented with a stimulus or, you know, when I am shown a picture of my husband, as opposed to a stranger, as opposed to maybe someone I had a bad experience with, you know, you can take biofeedback measures, you know, and then those biofeedback measures as far as stress or, oh, I love that person or, oh, I'm scared of that person. That's going to result in a behavior, right? So that's why my team and I sat down and said, okay, do we talk about mindfulness and how can we talk about it in a behavior analytic way, which we've nailed down to attention focus and delayed responding because we can, we can measure that. So you know, behavior analysts, when I first started talking about meditation and mindfulness, I got a lot of emails um, that questioned me and said, you can't measure, you know, how do you measure attention? How do you measure mindfulness? And I brought up studies where, uh, first of all, meditation is a behavior. You're sitting in a certain way, you're breathing in a certain way. I can measure that. But the point of meditation is when your mind wanders, and I say mind there because that's something that everybody understands, when your attention wanders, when you're thinking, oh, my grocery list, or, oh, I got in a fight with this person or work or whatever, you want to bring your attention back to a stimuli. And whether it's your breath 
or a candle or whatever, you're constantly refocusing and you're training your brain. You're you're strengthening cortical specificity or strengthening all those things. Um, and the studies that show a behavioral approach to attention might have someone tap their finger every third exhale. So that's an incompatible behavior, right? I can't think of, I can't go down a rabbit hole of my day and all my thoughts and get pulled away if I have to focus on breathe in for three seconds or four seconds, breathe out for four seconds, and every third exhale, I'm going to tap my finger. I have to organize my attention to focus on that. So if I'm not doing that, I can measure that in someone else and say, okay, their attention's wandering. Does that make sense? Yeah, completely. Yeah, it's very, very cool. Yeah, and there's all, uh, so many other great studies just on like health terms and stuff like that, obviously with meditation in terms of uh, people that meditate regularly, like how their sleep improves and stuff. And obviously we then have then studies that explain if you have improved sleep, how that improves your quality of life and other health markers and things like that. So. Yeah, that's interesting that people uh, would push back on that a lot, but it also makes a lot of sense. I would imagine that even with uh, having a a profession that that I guess like pushes back against a concept of of the mind and almost like the self, so to speak, that to a certain extent everyone still has to at least hold on to like a little one percent part of them, but that believes that there is some sort of self. Like when I. When I talk to someone that that is completely in the camp of like, I don't think that there's free will because, like I said, like we're all just a bag of chemicals. Like you, you insert uh, stimulus here, and this is what's going to be the output. I feel like even the people that are like the the most staunch of of people that are planting their flag in that argument, there has to be a piece of them, like a little piece of them, that still holds on to the fact that that somewhere they do have some free will because otherwise, like, what's the point of it, which, by the way, I, I fully plant my flag in that. Like, I do agree with the fact that we are mostly just like stimulus and response and whatever. But like, <laughs> if I truly believe that with every fiber of my being, then it's almost like, well, why do anything then? Like, what am I even right. doing here? <laughs> if I can just predict the next 40 years of my life by stimulus and response, like, then what the hell? Like, I might as well just sit in my room and not do anything. But, you know, I think the the uh, and, and, you know, I think there is like a depressing part of that. But at the same time. Um, I turn it into something positive because if I can say, okay, I've learned about the science of behavior. I'm, I'm learning, you know, I learn about why I do what I do. It's made me number one, more self-aware and it's helped me become a certain type of person. So I can use behavior analysis on myself to, you know, to be healthier. And I, you know, this is kind of the point of work well and, you know, the, the, the mindfulness or the, the tension and focus is only one part of what we do. We also work with, uh, leadership behavior, um, and, um, also with performance. Um, so if I say, okay, well, I know how to influence my own behavior, whether it's, you know, I want to run more or I want to be, um, you know, I want to be a friendlier person or I want to be a better leader. I can just break that down into a behavior and, and reinforce myself for engaging in that behavior or, or, you know, ask a colleague to kind of help me with this and, and have some sort of accountability. So, you know, I think the tagline now for behavior analysis, and we're just coming off a five-day international conference where there was a lot of talk about this, is 
we want to save the world. And it sounds very cheesy um, and very trite, but honestly, that's what most of us are out there to do as behavior analysts because we see the value in it. So yes, while people are saying, you know, they're wrestling with us saying, no, there is such a thing as free will. And, you know, I control my own, you know, you're engaging in counter control. That's also like behaviorally explainable. Um, the, you know, the, the push and pull that people get into, um, at the same time, I try and turn it into something positive and say, Yes, but because we know that why we do what we do is a science and it's a natural science, that's so cool. Um, and and now how can we make ourselves better? You know, right. how can we work on climate change? How can we work on, you know, um, you know uh, becoming better partners? How can we work on becoming healthier? And um, so I see, I see the opportunity as opposed to the negative side, I suppose. For sure. It's like you don't have to... Uh, emotionally and physically and lifestyle wise and everything just be a sailboat blowing around at sea at the whim of the wind you look at it as this empowering thing like okay well let's try to not always be at the whim of the wind let's try to break this down into little pieces so that we can start like manning this sailboat again and blowing in a direction that we want to blow in a hundred percent and making ourselves you know healthier and happier that's really our goal for sure so you mentioned the way that you, that you analyze your own behavior a lot and that it helps you out a lot. I would imagine doing what you do, like you must analyze other people all the time. And do you find that to be a good thing or a bad thing? It, it, like I notice, like I, whenever I'm like, you know, standing in line at the grocery store, like whatever, I am analyzing what everyone's doing like all the time. And I'm always like, why is that person doing that? You got to be like, what's going on here? And do you... Uh, do you do that same thing? And then is it almost like uh, a curse because you do know why those people are doing that? Or do you are you equally baffled by people most of the time? So um, it's it's funny that you mentioned the grocery store. Um, every behavior analyst will give this example to you is when we um, like when we just like want to freak out and run up to someone and help them, but we can't or don't is being in a grocery store where you see the, the, the child that is having a, an epic meltdown for the candy bar. Um, you know, they, they purposely put that there, talk about behavior, right? We put the candy bars, the checkout line so that when mom or dad is sitting there holding the child, the child's going for the candy bar and then they, you know, they get it and they make that sale. Um, or the magazines or, you know, whatever the, the last minute items. Um, so I've seen this a thousand times. Every behavior analyst will tell you this is like a nightmare story where you're watching the child have an epic meltdown for the candy bar and either the cashier or the parent says, oh my gosh, just take it and gives them the candy bar because the parent is acting for that negative reinforcement, right? I'm going to, I'm going to give the candy bar to the child. The child is going to stop crying. And then in it, that's going to that's going to negatively reinforce my behavior. The child crying is gone. It reinforces me doing that in the future. And now I don't get these looks from everyone of like you're a bad parent. Your child is you know horrendous and having this tantrum. Here, just take the candy bar. What's the harm in that? You know, it keeps them quiet. A behavior analyst will look at that and have a heart attack and say, "You just reinforce that behavior. Totally. That child has just learned the next time they're in that grocery store, they are going to tantrum for that candy bar." And there's a ton of science I can go into of reinforcement schedules and intermittent reinforcement, like the every once in a while candy bar thing. But yes, um, short answer. Yes. We are always, um, analyzing people's behavior. And when that, that kid, by the way, is like 25 years old and like manipulating his girlfriend, it's like, thanks a lot, mom. You gave him that candy bar that one time. <laughs> he learned to manipulate people 
all because you gave them the candy bar, you know? Right. And, you know, in, in relationships, um, I think we give a lot of child examples because that's where a lot of us grew up in our career. But, you know, in relationships, people will say, um, gosh, you know, my, my partner picks fights with me and I don't want them to pick fights with me anymore. And I'll say, okay, what's the consequence of that behavior? A lot of research that we have say consequences are responsible for about 80% of our learning. Um, so, or probably more than that. So what is the consequence? What do you do when your partner picks that fight with you? Well, you know, I, I reassure them and I tell them how much I love them. And then, you know, I, from then moving forward, I try and take them out to dinner more or whatever. And I say, okay, that's so nice. That's so nice of you that you're listening, you know, to your partner and, and good on you. But think about what, what just happened. Your behavior, your, your, your partner picked a fight with you and you're telling them how much that you love them and care about them. And then you want to take them out to dinner and give them flowers and all this type of thing. Wouldn't it be great? if we could just have a conversation and increase our communication skills by saying, Hey, I'm noticing that I'm not getting as much attention from you as I normally do. And that hurts my feelings. And, you know, let's talk about why that's happening. And then the other person could say, I'm so sorry. You're right. I've been busy with work. Let's go to dinner. You know, I'm going to, here's some flowers, you know, whatever, instead of engaging in this, like, you know, picking this fight and then my behavior is reinforced because now my partner is reinforcing it by telling by giving me exactly what I wanted, which is that attention. Does that make sense? It makes like total how sense. Funny that happens. I, yeah. And I'm really happy that you just brought this up with the couples thing and everything. So now we're getting a little bit away from the the workplace thing, but I hope you're okay with that because <laughs> totally. uh, these are you know, this is a good conversation to have. So um, I think so. I, I've been blessed because of the way that I was raised. I am a uh, talk early and talk often about the way that you feel about things, sort of person. Um, and I look around at my friends and relationships and they are not that way. And I see exactly what you were saying about how, like, you see the person in, in the, in the grocery store, like, and you want to help them out so bad when I'm like with my friends, a lot of the time I'm like, oh my God, like I, if this was me, like I would say something right now. And I know that that's uncomfortable, but you need to have this uncomfortable part right now so that it can be better later, you know? And it's like a, a lot of people didn't grow up the way that I grew up. So they are very uncomfortable with talking about their feelings and negative and inviting sort of a temporary negative situation uh so readily and easily so i guess what i would ask is how do you um condition someone's behavior when it's uncomfortable and difficult and it is not a way that they were raised so they were already programmed a different way they were programmed that we don't talk about these things we do just like shove our feelings away how do you reprogram someone to be doing new sorts of behaviors Sure. Yeah. Um, really good question. Interesting. Um, so, you know, you want to think about a person's learning history. And I think this is where um, behavior analysis can really help a, a broader audience um, is for perspective taking. So when you're very emotional and you're fighting with someone, it's really hard to calm yourself down and take that other person's perspective. As a behavior analyst, if someone is engaging in a behavior, it's because it has been conditioned in the past. It's been reinforced in the past. So if I, um, you know, talk about growing up, if, you know, if you, if growing up, um, you know, say as a child, I'm, I'm talking about my feelings and how I feel about everything and I'm trying to do, you know, the right thing. And I'm naturally, you know, engaging this behavior and it's, it can be punished by, I don't know, maybe a sibling or, or a parent or saying, we don't talk about that. Um, okay. Well now you're punishing my behavior. And I think punishment as a behavior analyst, it just means you're reducing that behavior, right? Punishment isn't, you know, um, 
necessarily a bad thing. We don't really use punishment that much. We focus on positive, you know, reinforcing a behavior as opposed to punishing it. However, if I come out and I'm, you know, being a vulnerable child and a parent says, we don't talk about that or, you know, and and kind of shuts the conversation down, uh, I build a learning history and that happens, you know, over time and years of, of that, you know, that behavior being, being punished. If I don't contact anyone else throughout my entire life that, that encourages me and, and rewards me for saying, wow, that was really vulnerable. Gia, I'm, I'm, thank you for telling me how you felt. I know that was uncomfortable. Let's talk about it. And then I think, you know, I'm rewarded because, okay, that behavior, that, that, uh, I don't know what you want to call it. Um, sharing behavior or that vulnerable behavior is reinforced. If I don't come into contact with those consequences where that behavior is reinforced, now I'm just kind of a person that learns to withhold and learns to internalize and, and not talk about these things because who wants to incur punishment, right? Who wants to incur someone saying that's weird or don't talk about that or, you know, we don't talk about that or um, no one wants to be shut down. Um, we're always acting for one of those four things, right? So if, I, if I'm engaging in a behavior and, and, and it's been punished in the past, of course, I'm going to engage in that avoidance in the future. So if someone, if I'm in a relationship now and I'm in a relationship with someone who's very vulnerable and says, let's talk about this, my learning history might be different. Um, and I might need a little bit more help, um, you know, moving along. So as behavior analysts, I would say, create situations where that behavior is reinforced. You know, if you have a partner where, you know, you're the talkative one and you're the one that wants to talk and share and your partner doesn't, instead of seeing that as a bad thing, think about maybe their consequences, maybe their learning history doesn't support that. So when that person does give you that little inkling of vulnerability or does, you know, say something, really reinforce it and be genuine about it. Wow, thank you so much. You know, I've that means so much to me that you shared that with me right now because then that's reinforcing the person's behavior and hopefully, you know, they get more opportunities to do that in the future so that behavior changes. Yeah. Wow, that's really nice. That's beautiful. I it, it's interesting you made me realize that I can only think of really one time that that's probably ever happened in my life and it's my friend uh Dace who now I'll have to tell to listen to this episode. <laughs> and it, like not that long ago, I was sharing something with him uh, at at breakfast. We were out to breakfast. And after I shared it, he said, wow, man, like, thank you for sharing that with me. And I was like, I don't think anyone's ever said that to me after I, sh-, you know, and it like, uh, but it was a very like vulnerable thing that I was sharing, you know? Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, it's such an interesting thing to tell someone thank you for them sharing something with you. 100%. You know? And like this, this is, I think I can tie this to the workplace because this is something that we talk about and with leadership and with performance feedback. Performance feedback is traditionally horrible and stressful. Um, and that does have an effect on our health. If I am a leader um, and I'm in an organization, I can actually improve the health of my employees, making making them happier and healthier by reducing their stress by saying, okay, Blake, it's our first day together. I'm going to be your supervisor. Let's, you know, first of all, I want to get to know you and create this environment where you can talk to me. I think a lot of us come from environments where, hey, if I speak up, that's punished, right? So we're all very passive and we talk amongst each other, but no change ever really happens. And well, in the past, when I talked to my boss, they just shut me down. So I'm not going to do that anymore. Um, Relationships are relationships are relationships, right? Romantic relationships aren't that different from from work relationships when it comes to a behavioral perspective. Um, So if I'm a leader, I want to sit you down and, and say, let's talk about your values. 
basically what's, how can I reinforce your behavior? Maybe you just had a baby and more time off matters more to you than money. Um, maybe attention, you know, is, is a huge value to you, attention and recognition. So instead of, you know, shooting you an email and saying, Oh, Hey, thanks buddy. And just leaving it go. I might call you to my office and say, like, thank you so much for doing that. Um, you know, this is why this helped and this why this is why, and I might recognize you in front of the team. So not everybody's motivated by money. And I think that's a mistake that companies make. Um, so, and when it does come to relationships, I, I would sit you down and, you know, identify your values. Like I just said, how can I reinforce your behavior? Um, and here is what I expect from you. Here is what you are bringing to the table. Here's what I'm bringing to the table, making things as clear as possible so that moving forward, it's basically just a, it's a matter of execution. You don't have to run around to different departments and, and be confused. I've already outlined for you. Here's what I expect from you. And here's what you can expect from me. And here's how we're going to measure your behavior over time, whether it's sales numbers you're hitting or the number of calls you have to make or the number of clients you need to see, um, whatever measure of productivity and success we're going to give you. It's really, really nice to know, number one, where you stand, number two, how you can do better, number three, the behaviors that you need to engage in to meet those metrics of success, and number four, have the behavioral support of a leader and or colleagues so that you're set up for success as opposed to being set up for um, for not being successful. When I say, hey, uh, you're a marketing person, uh, go go market. I'll see you in a year, right? We'll talk about your numbers in six months. Um, that can be really, really stressful. So that's why we take performance feedback into account. Also people engage in, in avoidant behavior when it comes to feedback. Um, I think it's so not funny, funny, but interesting that people, you know, you're saying right now, wow, nobody's ever, you know, it's one time that somebody has reinforced my behavior. I think positive reinforcement is kind of getting a bad rap or like, well, that's how you train dogs. Or like, that's how you work with children. You give them a, a piece of candy or, oh, hey, oh, little Sally, that was so sweet. That's so great that you did that. Oh, we need to positively reinforce each other as adults. And it doesn't have to be disingenuous. It doesn't have to be a pat on the head of, oh, Blake, great job, Blake. You did such a good job. It, it can be genuine. Of, wow. Like, thank you so much for doing that. Um, so when it comes to performance feedback, we get really, really involved in our assessments um, of how to give performance feedback and how to do it in the right way and how to make it fun um, so that your people are seeking out, you know, how can I be better? Give me my metrics of success. I want to do this together as opposed to, oh gosh, I don't want to meet with my boss. Right. Like the typical, like, scary father scenario, you know, like, oh, what, what is dad going to say I did wrong this time? Um, exactly. And just, just having clear expectations uh, can decrease stress. And when people talk about work well, they think, oh, health, uh, you know, healthy snacks in, in the workroom. And yeah, that's, that's part of it. But we're basically trying to decrease stress and improve health in, in little niches and little places where people don't realize that health can be improved. Right. So what are some of the more common things that you see companies sort of screwing up in this realm? So we've already talked a little bit about uh, uh, like per performance reviews and things like that. Uh, yeah, uh, other things that companies are very commonly screwing up in like in a way of relating to their employees. Sure. Um, number one, I would say misalignment with values um, creates distrust within companies. So I'll explain that. Companies might say we, you know, work-life balance is a is a big phrase. It's the trendy phrase right now. It's 
the hot button topic. So a company might say we really value work-life balance. Um, however, uh, you know, work-life balance is a value of ours and we care about employees. So we set that expectation. But then, uh, and they might put something into place like, you know, we don't ever email, you know, we're not supposed to email after six o'clock at night. We don't email before eight o'clock in the morning. You know, people are, and, and I really, really believe that people are trying um, but as a behavior analyst, you know, that's why behavior analysts are needed in companies because we can dive deeper into this and, and measure what's working and what's not. Um, so companies might say, we do walking meetings or, and we really value this and that. Um, but then at the end of the day, leadership will promote someone who is always on, who works 24 seven, who doesn't have balance, right? who isn't maybe adhering to this email policy and, and they're emailing after hours. And now that per person is promoted because of these behaviors, because they're 24 seven, they're working, you know, really hard. And it, that's not to say that we shouldn't be working hard, but number one, that's not a smart decision from an employee standpoint, because now you've created just, everybody's going to see that, right? Oh, you know, Gia got promoted because she works, you know, 24 seven, she's always on, She's like always stressed out and running around and doing everybody there's work, everybody else's work and, you know, leadership sees that they can get as much out of her as possible. And that's why she's promoted. And I'm just, this is just an example. Not everybody does this, but this is what I see. Um, number one, I see that, right. And it, it breeds a little bit of resentment and distrust of, well, this company says that they value work-life balance, but they're not setting up the behavioral contingencies that actually reinforce the person that takes vacation and that, you know, has other healthy relationships and does engage in walking meetings. Um, so number one, that, that creates distrust. Number two, that person that you just promoted, how sustainable are they? Working 24-7, they're, they're most likely going to burn out or incur illness or, or engage in, they're going to incur some sort of uh, aversive consequence that takes them out of the game and in the long run costs you money because now you have to replace the person that might have been doing three people's jobs. Um, and it costs money to train and it costs money and miss productivity and all of that. Uh, and then third, you're now changing your own culture. So you want to have this culture of balance and you know work-life balance, whatever that means to you. But now you're creating a culture that's completely opposite of that because all your employees are saying, well, yes, this is what the company says is valued, but this is what the company is actually valuing. And now I need to work harder and harder and harder. And then you get everybody burned out. And now everybody is leaving, right? Because everybody's expected to do two or three jobs. And you change that culture very quickly. Yeah. And, and probably a lot of people leaving prior to that point just because they don't like a company that says one thing and does another. So they're exactly. just like, well, this is dumb. Like, I'm just going to go to a company that's actually honest about their values. Exactly. 100%. Um, okay. So that obviously sounds like a huge one. Any other sort of glaring common mistakes that companies are making? Um, I wouldn't say it's a, it's a giant glaring mistake. I, you know, I think the use, the, the use of the term human capital is, um, just personally, it really bothers me because, you know, you spend capital and then it's gone and then you have to go get more. And I don't think people should be treated as, as being expendable. Um, so I think that I'm a big proponent of, of the words that we use and the language that we use and the meaning behind it. So to me, um, that that phrase is just like a little soapbox of mine. Um, so I and I another thing I wouldn't say this is maybe a glaring issue. I don't think people would see this as a glaring issue. To me, it comes across as maybe a glaring issue. Is we don't we don't take data 
in organizations. I mean, we do as behavior analysts, but typically in organizations, people take big data as far as, you know, numbers and all this, but this is why we're trying to make employee health and employee behavior a business metric. People run a business. A business doesn't run people. So if you can control, and I don't don't mean control in a bad way, but control and influence and modify behavior to to align everyone towards the same purpose, does a company, you know, can everyone in the company state the mission? Does everybody know what they're supposed to be doing and why? Um, There's a, a book that I came out that I read. It's called Made to Stick a while ago. And it went through this research of um, it aligned um, uh, company data to a soccer team. And it was like, I think like 75% of the employees um, or some percentage of employees couldn't state the mission of the company and couldn't state their role within the company. And they said, if you take a soccer team and extrapolate that data to a soccer team, that means like only two people or something on that team can actually tell you which team you're playing for and which goal you're scoring in, right? So like when you put it in those terms, I think it it makes this a little bit less abstract and esoteric. Do people know what their expectations are? Do people know where they're supposed to be going and and why? Um, And I think, um, so the the glaring mistake that I see is that um, organizations don't take the right kind of data um, of, of how we're driving towards a goal and using data to move forward. Um, Ideas 42 is a great company. They have a work-life balance team and they're, they're assessing, Hey, is a flexible schedule really a way to improve work-life balance? Or are we just having people work longer? Because if, you know, with the advent of technology, I can work 24 seven. If I have a flexible schedule, when exactly does my workday end? How do I outline that for people so that they don't get overworked? And my intention is not meeting my results, right? So my the goal of saying, hey, everybody's got a flexible schedule, work wherever you want, whenever you want, just get things done. Does that actually work? So they're doing some good research and it's very pre- preliminary research to see if um, if flexibility and, and other things that we are traditionally thinking are, are healthy behaviors and encouraging a healthy work-life balance do those? Do we actually have the data to show that that is actually working? Um, so hopefully we'll see that in companies. And again, that's that's what Workwell is really all about. Yeah, it's interesting. I my assumption is that like you were sort of hinting at is that flexibility would not be a good thing for the exact reason that you were stating. And and you know a lot of companies now like in the Bay Area and stuff have gone to unlimited vacation policies. And it's like oh mm-hmm. it's so great we have an unlimited vacation policy. And then you talk to people within those companies and lots of people like never go on vacation <laughs> because they have so much work piling up. And it's like, oh, if I leave, then I'm not going to be able to, you know, nobody's going to backfill me and I don't want to have to come back to all this stuff and whatever, which is very different than, let's say, in Europe where it's like, oh, we have we have five weeks of vacation. Mm-hmm. We and don't we have a limited <laughs> vacation. We have five weeks, and it's almost like you got to take that. Like, why, you know, you'd be an idiot not to take your five weeks. You got to take it. Um, it, yeah, like just leaving things open, like, oh, yeah, you work when you want, and, and the your vacation's unlimited and stuff like that can be very difficult for people. Having some constraints can be a really good thing to allow you to like explore those constraints, so to speak. Yeah, you know, I think even to to build on that. I, as a behavior analyst in a company, and this is something that we work on is, okay, show me your, show me your PTO numbers. You know, would you open your books to us and show us your PTO? 
oh, 65% of the PTO hours of your company aren't being used, that's a problem. But why? It's a problem we can solve, right? So we gather data on why, and we understand people are engaging in, in avoidant behavior. They're avoiding vacation. Why? Because you incur punishment when you come back to 3,000 emails, right? So it actually has the opposite effect of a vacation. So I think that's something that I don't think that's rocket science. I think that's just kind of highlighting a problem. And a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, 100%. But now we say, okay, well, now we have that data. You're engaging in avoidant behavior because you're incurring punishment from engaging in this, you know, vacation taking behavior. What can we do about that? What if we put a process in place to say, okay, it's May, it's June 1st today. It's June 1st. Gia is going on vacation August 1st or July 1st. What if we come up with some sort of a system where she's delegating work where, you know, okay, she has this big meeting on July 15th. Who's someone underneath her that really wants her position and we're training to move up to Gia's role once she's moved on that we can have go to that meeting? I love, you know, when I was in my clinical practice, when I went on vacation, I did this. If I was on vacation for two weeks and I had a giant meeting, I didn't want to stress out about it, right? I would take one of my team members, somebody that I was managing and saying, hey, I see a lot of potential in you. I think you've always taken really great notes and I've asked you to do it before. Can you attend this meeting for me? and take these notes, right? So number one, I'm having an awesome time on vacation because I'm not worried about the meeting. I have someone that I can trust. I get amazing meeting notes, probably better than I would have taken by the time I come back. And I'm reinforcing someone else's behavior beneath me who wants to move forward and who wants extra responsibility because I know that reinforces their behavior. And then I I can praise them for that and give them that attention and copy my boss and say, hey, when I was gone, Blake really stepped in. He gave me great meeting notes. You know, I just wanted you to know that he's a valued member of our team and he did a great job. If you ever need this when you go on vacation, talk to Blake. How awesome would that situation be? Instead of just saying, nope, I can't go on vacation. Too many people need me. I have too much work to do. There are processes in place and behaviors that we can change to allow for people to not only enjoy their work, but enjoy not being at work. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right, time to play devil's advocate a little bit here. <laughs> Go for it. Are we just becoming too soft and entitled? Everything that you're talking about sounds like it's very targeted towards millennials and uh, you know, people like you and me, people that are younger than us. And are we all just too freaking soft now and we need to listen to our parents and our grandparents who are telling us that we're too soft and that work is work and it's a job and you're not supposed to enjoy it and you don't need your company to be giving you more and more stuff. And you don't need your company to always be asking, oh my gosh, how can we help Blake? How can we help Gianna? You mm-hmm. just need to freaking put on your big boy pants and go to work and work as hard as you can. Sure. So um, some self-disclosure, I just turned 36 like a week or two ago. So I sit firmly between the age group of millennials below me and then the generation above me. Um, my parents are 16 years apart. So my mother, I think, came from more of like, enjoy your life and, you know, enjoy your work. And my father, who's 83, came from an Italian immigrant family who like worked in the coal mines. And so I got both of that of like, you're not supposed to like work, go to work, do a good job. You know, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And Um, just pray they don't fire you. Exactly. Exactly. And I grew up, I mean, my dad was, you know, he was a lawyer. He had a distribution company and warehousing company. He started an Italian restaurant. He started a nursing home. Like he did everything. Um, so I grew up, you know, with like, hey, whatever you do, be good at it and work hard. 
Um, and then I think from my mother's side, it was always, well, yes, but also in, enjoy, enjoy what you're doing. Right. So I kind of sit firmly and now, you know, I, I have millennials, um, coming up behind us. So I, I have, I have two answers to that question for the people that are older, you know, than us and come from other generations that would say, you're not supposed to like work. You're being kind of a brat, just go and do your thing and go home. They didn't grow up with the technology that we now have. It was impossible to work 24 hours a day. Um, it was impossible. You you go to work at nine, you come home at five, and then you've got five hours to, you know, have dinner with your family and, you know, go for a walk or, you know, whatever. Um, so while they might not have enjoyed the work that they were doing, they weren't bombarded with gig economy, global competition, technology, all the things, all the variables that drive our behavior today. Um, so even though you, you might not have liked your work, you didn't have to do it all day, every day and all the time. And it wasn't always accessible to you and in your face. Um, so I think they're coming from a different perspective. Now where we are, it is possible to work 24 seven. So you might as well at least like a little bit of what you do. And you know we have information that we didn't have back then. Um, I think generationally, you know, over the generation, over the generations, we've been asking why, why, and challenging the status quo. Maybe starting in the seventies, and it's, it's, I think it's in, intensified since. Why, why, why? I used to work for the government. When I said why, the answer was because that's how it's always been done. Because that's how it's done here. And some people will say, okay. Oh man, it sounds like my mom. Who's, by the way, the best mom ever. And she's definitely listening to this because she is the best mom ever. But when I was a little kid and I, whenever I, I was like a, a, the, the why master of the world. And it was always like, because your mom said so. I was just exactly. like, you got to please give me a better answer than that. Shut up and do it. Right. <laughs> just do it. Um, the just do it. I don't think, you know, sorry to Nike, but like it, it, it might not. The just do it like might not be working right now. We, we want to know why, because I think by asking okay, yeah, that's the way it's been done, but there are a laundry list of things that aren't working here. I have data to show you why it's not working. I'm going to ask again, why? Why are we engaging in behaviors that we know are counterproductive to our goal? Um, I think we're just getting better at doing that culturally over the generations because we see it working. It's reinforcing our behavior. Um, on the other side of that, um, I do believe that you have to work hard and prove your worth. If I'm at a company and I'm meeting my goals and my, my, my boss is telling me you're doing a great job, um, you know, we love you, you, you do a great job, thanks for helping out with that, by all means, I want to be able to stay at that company and, and, and enjoy what I do. Because if I'm a good worker and I'm valuable, I can leave and go somewhere else. Um, especially as a behavior analyst, we can work in so many different areas. I mean, there are probably two jobs out there for every behavior analyst, if not more. Um, so what, where I am better be reinforcing my behavior and whether we call it entitled or soft or, you know, whatever it is, number one, I don't think it's too much asked to like what you do and to be reinforced for, for, for great behavior, um, and for success. Um, number two, if you're in a company and you're working hard, you know, as a business owner, I want to keep you. That's just a smart business decision. Um, we make that point with work well. You know, this isn't bending over backwards to, to shell out, to give millennials what they want. It's saying, we want to create an environment that, that keeps you, 
because it's a smart business decision. It's the right thing to do to not overwork your employees, to make sure they get time with family, to make sure there are movement breaks during the day, to make sure they have time to focus on their actual work instead of being bombarded with meetings. That's not only the right thing to do, it's a smart business decision. So, you know, yes, I think millennials, I think are getting that reputation of, of asking for too much, but if you can, if it's reinforcing your behavior, then fine. And yes, there, there is a line. I think that I, I have heard of things. I have heard requests that I think are ridiculous. Um, however, you know, as a business owner, if one of my, I have millennial and, you know, co-owners that I work with staff, if they were to ask me for something that I thought was, you know, completely outside the box, I can say no. Um, and if you go some, you know, I can say, you know, we can't provide that to you, but how about this? Um, if you say, you know, I want a completely different job, I can say, well, unfortunately, you know, we need you in this role, but how about you engage in this role 75% of the time and 25% of the time I have you go work with the marketing team because you're really interested in that. How, how does that, how does that work? Can we find a middle ground there? So I think, you know, I sit on both sides of that seesaw that goes up and down. I do think that there is a middle ground though. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably a good spot to sit on the seesaw. Um, you know, sorry to add to that. I just thought of another point of we now have data that show that the workplace is causing a degradation of mental and physical health. And personally, at work, well, we don't separate mental and physical health. It's all health. I don't. I've never woken up with the flu and felt mentally ready to tackle my day, but physically terrible. Like I just don't. I don't think those things can be separated. Um, so we do talk about health as a whole. But you know, I think we have the data now that show. The workplace is a source of stress. Stress causes A, B, and C, you know, mental and physical degradation. I, I don't think it's too much to ask to want to be healthier at work. So, you know, now that people are advocating for that, um, I think that that's a great thing. Yeah, no, definitely. I could not agree more. I want to call back to something from the beginning of this interview, which was you talking about how four people might do something, but they each might have a completely different reason for doing it. So. We obviously all have totally different personalities, different desires, wants, needs, whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, if we all have different personality types, how is it that a company or, or you, <laughs> uh, when you're consulting and trying to make suggestions, can, can make policy changes that are going to be better for everyone when we are, when we are all N equals one? Sure. That's a great question. Um, you know, I am a big advocate for... Uh, communicating with candor, um, for teaching people and providing education surrounding a why, um, and um, leaning back on on the research and what works. Um, so, if I have a team of, say, for math's sake, because I can barely do math, um, if say I have a, a team of, you know, a company of a hundred people, and we want this policy change, uh, you know, we're going to try and create some sort of a policy change. And 50% of the people are like, yes, finally, this is happening. We've been asking for this. We're in. And 50 people are saying, I don't know about this. Here are all the things that are wrong with that. I'm not on board. I'm not, you know, I'm not on board at all. How do you align all of these people together? First of all, why are the people, why are the 50% the that are saying no, no, no? Why? What's the reasoning for that, right? Why, you know, let's sit down and analyze those variables. Are you avoiding change? Are you, in, you know, are you engaging in avoidant behavior because you just don't want change? 
Um, are you engaging in this um, avoidant behavior because it will have an effect on the amount of attention that you get, right? Maybe this threatens um, my title and I'm not going to have this certain title anymore that I get a lot of attention and recognition for. Um, you know, how is it going to, you know, what's the why behind that? Um, and that those are vast. Y yes, there are only four reasons that we do anything, but I think individuals all have different reasons. Um, I think as Americans, we want the pill, right? What's quick and easy? How can we just change things? Maybe that's another mistake that companies are making. We just say, here's a policy, follow it and move on without getting that buying, without exploring. So as a behavior analyst, if a company did say, hey, we have this policy change and some people aren't on board, I would want to sit with the people that are on board. What do you like about this? And the people that aren't on board and saying, okay, you know, what are the variables behind this? And it takes time. It could take three to six months to get everyone on board. But to me, at the end of the day, it's all about education. This is why we're making this policy change and how it affects you and your values. Number two, we understand that this policy isn't perfect and it might affect some of you in A, B, and C way. Here's what we're doing to make sure that we minimize that impact on your title, your values, your time, your work, whatever that is. What can we give you to almost make up for that? What can we give you to add value to this change for you? And number four, I think the most important part is once everybody is aligned and together and, and aligned in the same direction, reinforcing it. Thank you so much. We can't do this without you. Um, it, it sounds, it can come off, that positive reinforcement can come off very disingenuous, but leaders really need to mean what they say. They need to look at their employees um, and identify what's meaningful to them and give it to them. So if it's, if it's attention, be genuine. We couldn't do this without you guys. We couldn't do this without you men and women fighting so hard for this policy change and we really believe in it. Um, and we can have another conversation. It's a whole other podcast of, um, of being genuine and having values aligned to social impact and positivity and, and all of that. Um, and again, there's a lot of ways that, that this could go wrong, but that's, that's my short answer of, of, of um, and then piloting those projects, right? Okay, we're going we're gonna to change this policy in this department and see how it goes so that people can contact reinforcement and see, wow, that actually, that actually is working. Um, now I'm, you know, I'm now on board. Yeah. Um, pe people want to feel like they have control. Another thing, one of the most interesting things I've learned is that, you know, um, uh, there's research on uh, these like 10 workplace behaviors that contribute to the degradation of health. One of them is having low control over your tasks at work and over the decision-making at work. So Blake, do this in this way and have it to me at this point, right? No one wants to feel like a puppet. No one wants to feel like they're being controlled. Um, people have good ideas, you know, even the people who, you know, maybe are at the bottom of the totem pole as far as productivity, just because they're not meeting that metric doesn't mean they don't have good ideas. And they don't have skills. People want to feel like they're contributing, like they're being, you know, heard and listened to and, and all of that. Um, so, so to me, I think, you know, it's taking all that into control and giving people um, control and, and autonomy over what they do. Um, that decreases stress, right? It, it improves health outcomes. So there's a lot out there um, that, that people don't realize that hopefully we can bring to the organizations that we work with. So let's say that we work at a company. We don't own our own company. Um, what are individual small changes that we can make in our own lives to sort of enjoy our, our work better, enjoy our work-life balance better? Uh, 
Um, again, you know, as a behavior analyst, if you specifically were to come to me and ask me that question, I would have a slew of questions for you, right? Like I said, everything happens, change happens slowly. Um, and it's all individual. So I would ask you, um, you know, what, um, what's his name? Um, there's a guy, um, the, uh, Marcus Buckingham, he, uh, is involved with strengths finder and, and Gallup and all of that. He has this very, very, very simple exercise of love it or loathe it. And you go throughout maybe four days, seven days, something like that at work. And you simply keep a column of what you loved about your day, what added energy, what gave you energy, um, and what you loathed about your day, what took away your energy, what made you feel like, oh, that meeting was an hour, but it felt like six hours. Um, and then the love it would be like, wow, that was only, you know, that was a two hour meeting, but it felt like 10 minutes went by because I was so engaged. You keep a running tab of those behaviors and those, those tasks and activities. And then you look at the love it and, you know, try and increase those behaviors. You look at the loathe it and try and obviously delegate or, or decrease or work with those behaviors. So to me, it comes with almost analyzing your own behavior. What would make it better? I feel irritable during the day because I sit all day and I have no room for movement breaks. Okay. Do you have room or, or the authority to have walking meetings? I've done that in companies before and I love it. Um, wait, wait, wait. Did you say walking meetings? Yeah. That you is amazing. No, I've never heard of that. I've never seen that. It sounds amazing. Yeah. Um, that's been really effective for me, especially when I worked in companies that, where I've led teams that sit a lot. I think, of course, with technology, we sit so much um, and you find yourself craving movement, right? Um, I sat, I, I presented on two panels at our international conference last weekend and the, the men I was presenting with, we all decided that we wanted to stand, not sit on the panel with our microphones, but stand and walk around and be engaging because all of us are very um, just hyper engaged, excited people and sitting for an hour is like a nightmare. So I've, I've had walking meetings of, okay, um, whether it's an individual or a group, I will say, you know, everybody bring your sneakers to this walking meeting. And if it's a walking meeting of 20 people, right. You're, how, how do you like corral the cats so that everyone's hearing you and listening and all of that? It's hard, but you can break up into teams. All right, today we're going to focus on this. Walk in a line of three around this track or whatever and come up with some innovative solutions to this problem. Um, I took data on my own behavior. 80% of the ideas that I've had that have come to fruition and been successful have been ideas I've had while I was running. So now I don't see running as a, I have to run. And when I'm like, oh, I hate running, it's hot outside, I don't want to take my dog with me. I see it as I've been sitting for four hours, I'm really having trouble with this you know, project or whatever, I'm going to go for a run. I see it as a business decision mm. to get up and go for a run because I have the data that show that I'm more likely to, to work through this or come up with a solution if I've run. Not everybody's the same way, but it's individual. Um, so at the end of the day, it's, it's assessing your own behavior and what variables in your day suck. <laughs> and do you have the authority to change them and how? And if you don't, who has the authority and do you feel comfortable going to them and saying, I'm, I get really irritable when I sit for a long time. How about we do walking breaks? Or is it cool if I take, you know, an hour in the morning or 45 minutes at the end of the day and, you know, walk around the office? Um, I live in San Diego, so I can be outside most of the year. Um, I'm also from the East Coast and I moved here from Washington, D.C. You can't be outside most of the time. So 
if I don't want to look like a weirdo, but I want to walk during the day, you know, how about I tell my team, all right, I'm going to do a walking meeting or I'm going to get up and walk for 30 minutes at this time. Who wants to come with me? Right. You're creating that cultural change. And then of course you want to access reinforcement and, and feel better afterwards and take some data on that. Uh, you're getting me fired up to like go for a walk right now or a <laughs> run or anything. Um, Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So let's go ahead and start to wind this thing down, Gianna. So, uh, first, like mainly I would love to hear about your company and starting it and why you started it and sort of a little bit more about your focus and stuff like that. But before we finish off on that, I have to know, I I have this question that I wrote down for you, which is, do you ever consider using your powers for evil? And now thinking about (laughs) it, I'm like, well, of course she must think about that all the time. And so the question more is like, how do you not use your powers for evil all the time? It's like, (laughs) you basically have a degree in manipulating people. (laughs) <laughs> How do you not just manipulate everyone to do things that you want them to do? Um, well, first of all, I will say I feel like manipulation just means to mold and to modify. So <laughs> I, I don't see manipulation mm. as a dirty word. It depends. That's on what a very manipulative thing of you to say. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe. Um, again, I think what I love about our field um, in behavior analysis is in our continuing education credits, um, we are always we're always learning and, and doing things. Um, we are probably one of the most ethical fields out there because of what we do. Um, it makes me feel icky if I feel like I'm coercing someone. You and I, even as a behavior analyst, I 100% believe that you cannot make someone do what they do not want to do. I firmly believe that. Um, we can set up conditions to make people successful or to engage in a certain behavior. Um, but if that person fundamentally does not want to do that, I can say, you know, like, I'll give you 500 bucks if you do this, but you don't want to do it. You're still going to say no. Now I can up the ante and say, what about a million dollars? And then you say, well, okay. Whatever it is, I'll do it. (laughs) Exactly. Um, but at the end of the day, if it's firmly against your values, like, you know, cheating on a spouse or like murdering someone, you know, something that's so against your values and so atrocious that there's no amount of money that's going to make you do that. I can't change your behavior. Um, so I think getting back to like why it might not be so depressing that we're predictable, you still do have some control, right. Um, over what you do. Um, and I would say as far as like using powers for evil, like, you know, that's something that I think every behavior analyst comes into where we, we see the light with someone, right? We want to help a friend in a relationship. We want to help a parent with their child. We want to help an organization, you know, run better and have happier and healthier employees. And, but, you know, you have to keep yourself in check of like, am I being coercive here? Or am I being 100% um, honest and genuine about what I'm doing? So I think there's a difference of saying, you know, on a podcast like this, this is how behavior works. And if you want to engage in this behavior, this is how to do it. That's one thing. I think that's a very ethical way to approach behavior change. That's very different than not giving that information and and putting some contingencies into the place and kind of keeping it underground, right? I would say most behavior analysts really just want to word vomit what we do um, and get out there into the world and, and make it cool and make it something that, that people... Um, understand and want to learn more about. And we can't do that if we're seen as these like terrible, coercive manipulators. Um, so I will say that most of the behavior analysts I've know, um, 
you know, I would say I've never met a behavior analyst that wants to, you know, be evil. I would say that my husband might have a different take on that because <laughs> he's a know, much different man now than he used to be. Right. You know, the other day he's like, you know, how am I doing with everything? And I said, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm shaping your behavior. It's going really well. And he's like, yeah, <laughs> he's like, but I have come a long way. Right. And I'm like, yeah, exactly. And, you know, I use humor. I make it a funny thing. Um, I firmly believe like my husband is like the best person in the world and has no enemies and is the best and, you know, wants to be a good husband. So, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, Hey, this is what I want out of you. Or, Hey, did you notice when I say this, you do this and that kind of comes off combative or, you know, whatever. Um, so I use humor. We're all human. We're all under the same contingencies just because I'm a behavior analyst doesn't mean that like, I'm, you know, I'm, um, you know, you, you can't use this on me. Um, and also, you know, people don't like feeling like they're being uh, manipulated. So, you know, again, there's a, there's a real approach that you can take, um, you know, to, to changing behavior. And I think, you know, the end all be all answer to that question is, um, uh, you know, using using behavior analysis for evil um, is not anything that we touch. I think we're a really positive community of people. And uh, like I said, we want to we're always wanting to help because we know the way, right? We know the way of helping. Um, and, uh, and we want to be as transparent with that as possible. Yeah, for yeah. sure. All right, let's go All ahead right. and finish this thing up. Gianna, why don't you tell us a little bit more about WorkWell and your company, why you started it? Um, and like just the whole thesis behind it. Sure. Um, so I, as I said, it was in clinical practice for a really long time. Um, I had, um, I've worked for, for, for decent companies, good companies. Um, but there was really a ceiling for me. Um, and my, my, my values, um, of, of work ethic and moving forward and, and climbing a ladder in a company, there weren't really opportunities for me. So even though I was getting paid really well and working maybe only four hours a day, I had trouble getting out of bed in the morning. And, uh, as you can tell, I'm an excited, hyper Italian person who, you know, I bounce out of bed in the morning now at five or 6am. And, um, I noticed that I was in bed until like eight 30 in the morning and I've always been a morning person. And I was like, wow, you know, the contingencies in my current workplace aren't reinforcing my behavior anymore. Um, this has not become, this is not as valuable as it used to be. So, um, I, left my job. I traveled for six months. I lived in Europe for a month um, and really took some time to just kind of recalibrate and unwind. It was right after I got married. So it was, I visited friends and family and did that whole thing. Um, I came back and started a, uh, um, my own private practice to work with children um, with behavioral issues um, of a variety of kinds. And that lasted for about a month. Um, and I thought, you know, if I'm going to do this entrepreneurship thing and start my own company, I want it to be huge. I, I have the opportunity to really make positive change. And I don't know if I want to do what I've been doing for the last, you know, 15 years. Um, I still have my private practice. I still have a hand in that, but, um, I moved on and I created a course on meditation. Um, prior to that, I wrote about meditation, um, as behavioral Xanax for a behavioral publication. And that was kind of me coming out, testing the waters with other behavior analysts to say, how do y'all feel about this? How do we feel about talking about health and meditation and, you know, mindfulness? And can we turn that into like a brainwave thing? And um, it was really well received. So that told me that, you know, I was in the right, I was going in the right direction. I started um, two courses. Um, one of the first ones that's still, I think we're re-releasing it in a couple of weeks. It's called Behavioral Xanax. 
Um, it's reducing your specific stress behaviors. So when I'm stressed out, I might go like eat potato chips and be unhealthy, or I might be irritable with my husband, or I might engage in road rage behavior more often. So the behavioral Xanax is really teaching people to meditate, but also having them measure their stress behaviors of like, hey, is this really affecting your stress level? Is this affecting the behaviors you engage in when you're stressed out and allowing you to engage in healthier behaviors instead? Um, And in my research for that course, I came across a lot of public health information. The World Economic Forum and the World Health Organization specifically have identified stress as a public epidemic and a public health concern. And I was like, yes, boom, that's what I'm doing with behavior analysis. I'm solving public health through the workplace because that's where a lot of stress and task overload and anxiety, you know, is, is if not started, it's exacerbated there. Um, that's what I'm doing. Uh, so that's where it started. And I realized how big it would be. So I took on three other behavior analysts that were super passionate and interested in the mission and built our culture, um, you know, since last year. And, and that's what we do now. So we're piloting our assessments and, and getting out there, um, and helping, um, businesses understand that employee health does matter. Um, it's not only the right thing to do. Like I said, it's, it's a smart business decision. And, um, that's why we have the tagline. We make corporate health heroes. We're not there to come in as behavior analysts and say, we know everything. We're going to come in, fix everything and leave. We want to change our culture. We want to change the way things go around here and what happens when you engage in certain behaviors. And that's a very collaborative thing. So we want leaders to reach out to us and say, well, I want to be a corporate health hero. I care about my company to hire us to come on and say, great, we're going to make you a corporate health hero so that you can feel good about the company that you run. Man, that's awesome. I love that, Gianna. I mean, trying to tackle stress is like really is like the most noble thing that you can do. I I feel like stress, it it makes you become a person that you are not. It, you know, it affects your personality in such a way that you you feel sort of like under fire. And now I my personality is like manipulated, and I'm behaving in this way that I don't feel like is genuine. That I don't feel like is me, so to speak. Um, it's this altered version of me. And there's nothing that any of us want more than to just feel authentic and to get to for Blake to be Blake and for Gianna to be Gianna. It's like I, I feel like the most core desire that we have as people is just to be able to feel like you are you and stress takes that away a little bit. So uh, to be able yeah. to rem- in addition to like you said, all the ties it has into physical health and everything. Um, yeah, like there's no <laughs> there's no greater thing to try to tackle than that. That's awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah. And and funny, like side anecdote, you know, I have read all the research, you know, I'm a behavior analyst. I read all the research on public health and what stress does and don't overwork yourself. And I, in April, worked for 21 days in a row. I left for, um, I did some other podcasts and some other projects. I had a trip to Europe planned in May. I got sick when I never get sick two days before I left for Europe. Um, I developed an eye twitch and hives. And I thought, yeah, but as a behavior analyst, I was like, cool, this stuff actually happened. Yeah. Right. All the things. And I think a behavior analyst would be the only person to be like, cool, I'm sick. And that's potentially correlated with all this, you know, all this work I've been doing and I haven't been drinking my bone broth or exercising or whatever. Correlation doesn't equal causation. Um, But I was like, cool. Like this is, this is the way that I don't want people to feel, right? So if I can help people in that way avoid 
this like, well, I have neck pain. I have an eye twitch. I'm getting hives. I'm sick. I mean, we're, I love working, but we are not put on this planet to work. You know, we're all going to be, I forget if it's, um, the alchemist or, um, the monk who sold his Ferrari, but there's this concept of this deathbed mentality of you're going to be on your deathbed one day. And when you put yourself on your deathbed, when you're looking back at your life, what are you going to wish you did differently? And when you actually ask people that question at the end of their lives, they say, I wish I didn't work as much as I did. But as a behavior analyst, you're contacting reinforcement all the time. You're getting attention. You're getting things done. It's moving. It's so immediate. I see why people overwork. I overwork myself. But if we can be a part of changing that culture and decrease the amount of time that we overwork ourselves, and if we're healthier and happier, when we get to that point, at the end of our lives, we're going to say, you know, I enjoy time with my family or I got to travel or yes, I did good work, but I also did all these other things. And at the end of the day, that's what it's about for me. Yeah. I love that. I love that so much. Gianna, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been awesome. And I am going to go for a walk right now. <laughs> Wonderful. I've influenced your behavior. <laughs> oh, damn it. Ah, oh, you got me. <laughs> Text me afterwards and I will, I will tell you how amazing you are for going on a walk. And it, you'll do it again in the future. <laughs> All right. Perfect. Thanks, Gianna. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I love this. Hey everyone, it's Blake. I hope you all enjoyed the episode. If you did, I would appreciate it so much if you considered leaving a review for the show on iTunes. I swear it'll only take like two minutes. Um, just search for the show on iTunes, click on it, click on ratings and reviews. You can leave a quick review um, or just uh, keep listening to the show. I appreciate that as well. Or tell a friend about the show or something. And if you have any ideas for the show, if you have a particular job or hobby that you would like to hear interviewed on the show, if you yourself think that you do something interview worthy and you would like to tell the world about what this job or hobby is that you have, head on over to halfhourintern.com. There's a link right there at the top that says submit your ideas and you could submit your ideas for the show, be them uh, somebody else that you would like me to interview, a particular field that you would like to hear about, or even if it is you yourself that would like to come on the show. Thanks so much for listening, you guys.